0: younger son got together all he had, set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth in wild living. After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in the whole country. He began to be in need, so he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to his fields to feed pigs. He longed to feed, to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating but no one gave him anything. You know, the video that we just saw captures some of the shock value of Jesus' parable. His original audience was absolutely shocked at this story. We typically call this story the parable of the prodigal son. But a better title is the surprising father. Because the rebellious son isn't the centerpiece of the story. It's actually the unexpected and unfathomable response of the father. The first thing we notice is the request. Reading this parable through our 21st century Canadian lens, we miss the shocking elements. Kenneth Bailey in his book, Poet and Peasant, and through peasant eyes that we've been referencing throughout the series, he asked people living in remote Middle Eastern villages about the request that the younger son makes of the father. In regard to wanting his inheritance. And it was amazing as as Kenneth Bailey asked this question to the villagers. The exact same response in every single area. From the south of Egypt to the mountains of Iraq. To all through Libya and Palestine. Amazing responses. This is what Kenneth Bailey said. He said, has anyone ever made such a request in your village? Never. Never. Could anyone ever make such a request? Impossible. If anyone ever did, what would happen? His father would beat him. Of course. Why? This request means he wants his father to die. You see, this is how it works. There was no old age security. There was no Canada pension plan for in the first century for Jewish people, the inheritance is what the father was meant to live off of during his lifetime. And then finally, when the father died at his death, the estate would be divided between the two sons. For the son to go in and demand when the father is still living and still in good health, that is equal to saying, Father, I cannot wait for you to die. Two other biblical scholars support Kenneth Bailey's conclusion. In his book, Jesus of Nazareth, G. Bornkamp says, The prodigal son demands his own portion of his goods and treats the father as if he were already dead. And Diovia, in his book, Parables, their literary and existential dimension says, Thus the prodigal's demand for the right of disposal was to treat his father as if he were dead. This is a hugely shocking request. Nobody can believe that the younger son is doing this. And not only is it a a violation of first century Jewish culture, it's a direct violation of the Ten Commandments. Exodus 20.12 says really plainly, honor your father and mother so that you may live long in the land the Lord your God is giving you. It's one of the Ten Commandments, and this guy is violating it. It was a massively shocking request. And it was the father's full right to beat his son. But surprisingly, he doesn't. He does the unthinkable and gives the son his section, his amount of the inheritance. The father was a pretty wealthy guy. He had lots of estates, lots of land. This is a significant amount of wealth that he's handing over to the son. Kenneth Bailey again says, It is difficult to imagine a more dramatic illustration of the quality of love, which grants freedom even to reject the lover that the given in this opening scene. The people of the rebellious son's village would quickly know what he had done. It would be the talk of the village. Can you believe what he asked his father for? It's outrageous. No one's ever done this. And one of the things we notice in the parable is that the son gets that inheritance and he is gone. He is out of there really fast, really quickly. You know why that is? Because apparently it wouldn't take long for the mood of the village to change. The more people talked about it, they would get angry about it. And they would turn from disgust to actual hatred for the younger son. So this guy takes off. He lives like a total idiot. He squanders this huge amount of wealth. And then a famine hits. The son is starving. This has become a really desperate situation. Now, all this background information is hugely helpful because the obvious question pops into our minds. Why doesn't the son just go home? He's starving to death. Just leave. Go home, junior. Here's what the young rebel would have considered in his mind. He would have realized, he would have thought, you know what? I brought massive shame on myself in front of the people of my village. I don't, I don't want to face that. I brought shame on the elders of my village. They would give me a good beating if I went home. And lastly, I'm afraid of my father. He'll be angry. He'll be full of scorn for me. He will definitely punish me. So this guy says, forget it. Even though it's a famine, even though I've run out of money, I'll go hire myself out to a Gentile, to a non-Jewish person. Turns out that this job's about the worst one you can think of for a good Jewish boy. Feeding the pigs. Doesn't get any worse. It got so bad that the pig foods started to look good to him. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods the pigs were eating. But no one gave him anything. And you know what? If you think about it, that's pretty much how life works. We give God and his plan for our lives. We give God the middle finger and we run the other way. There was a movie that came out a few years ago called Walk the Line. And it uh, chronicled the life of uh, the country singer Johnny Cash. And if you saw the movie, uh, it was pretty heartbreaking as he torpedoed his own life. The endless affairs, the drug abuse lying, deceiving family and friends. In an interview with Rolling Stone magazine's Anthony De Curtis, Johnny Cash talked about his lowest point and how the worst aspect was actually spiritual. This is what it says. To Cash, even his near-deadly near bout with drug addiction contained a crucial spiritual element. I used drugs to escape, and they worked pretty well when I was younger. But they devastated me physically and emotionally and spiritually. They put me in such a low state that I couldn't communicate with God. There's no lonelier place to be. I was separated from God. Wasn't even trying to call on him. I know that there was no line of communication, but you know what? He came back and I came back. Just like the prodigal son starving And working in a filthy pig pen in a foreign country, Johnny Cash reached his lowest point. And he came back to his his senses and he decided, you know what, it's time to go home. And that's the crucial point that so many people need to reach in life. Everything they thought was so exciting, so fulfilling. Little promiscuous sex, drug, alcohol abuse. But finally there comes a point in life where we come to the end of ourselves. And no matter where we turn, we can't find peace. We can't find meaning or purpose or hope. When we get desperate, we finally humble ourselves and admit there just may be something to this whole Jesus thing. Maybe that captures how someone here listening online feels about their life. Isn't it amazing that this parable of Jesus told almost 2,000 years ago feels extremely relevant? Now, if you think about that for a minute, why should that be the case? If this is just a story written in a book that doesn't mean anything, it shouldn't have that ability. But the parables of Jesus jump over two millennia, 2,000 years, and they grab us by the heart. That should give us a clue that these are, in fact, the words of God. Let's see what the prodigal son does next. We're going to pick it up in verse 17 through 21. His father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him and kissed him. Son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. So our rebel, without a clue, has finally come to his senses. What made him wake up? Biblical scholar Dale Bruner says both starvation, that's a pretty good motivator, but more importantly, the memory of his father. He remembers that his father treated his hired men, his servants, far better than the squalor he is currently living in. As he walks that long road home, he begins to put together a speech. We know this because he delivers it the moment he gets home. What are kind of the three points of his speech that he's working on? Well, number one, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. Father, I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. And part three, make me as one of your hired men so that I can pay off my debt. And that is an incredibly insightful little scene. That is our natural human response. When we've run away from God, when we've done the opposite of what God has called us to do, when we've violated and offended God, our natural human response is we want to try and justify ourselves. We want to work off the debt. That's absolutely impossible. For the son who had run away to be hired back as a laborer, probably even lower pay than one of his dad's main servants, that would take a lifetime to pay off that inheritance that he took. Absolutely impossible. And it's really no different with us in relation to God. We violated God. We've sinned. There is a gulf of sin between us and our creator. But in our pride, wanting to regain our pride, we feel like we have to to try and earn it, try to justify ourselves. That's why some people stumble over the good news of the gospel. They can't accept the grace and the gift that has been offered. They proudly have to try and earn it. You know, Paul slams such foolish thinking. Ephesians 2 8 and 9. He says, For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. Maybe that's where you find yourself today. For some of you, listening, you've never said yes to following Jesus. You would prefer to try and justify yourselves. You falsely believe that if you could do a little more good in life than bad, that it would kind of tip the balance scales in your favor. And when you die, God will swing open the gates of heaven and say, come on in, welcome, You, you did more good than bad. Well done. But that's not how it works. That is most definitely not the Christian faith. We as human beings can never justify ourselves. The gospel says, stop trying. Maybe other of us here understood that. We've understood grace. We've understood that we can't pay off our own debt of sin. We've understood that in terms of salvation. But once we begin to live the Christian life, when we mess up, we immediately go back to that kind of thinking. We feel guilty that we sin, so we slip back into that old mindset. And we start to believe thoughts like, man, if I just get really busy for Jesus, if I just serve all the time, if, if I just give my all to it, then Jesus will like me again, and we'll be back on good terms. That's garbage. That is not the gospel, and that's not the way it's meant For us to live our Christian life, I love what J.D. Greer says in his book Gospel. He says, In Christ, there is nothing I can do that would make me love, make him love me more, and nothing I have done that makes him love me less. Not beautiful. Well, I'm going to read us one of the most beautiful descriptions of the heart of God ever recorded. Let's pick it up in verse 22. But the Father said to his servant, Quick, bring the best robe. Put it on him, put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate for this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and he is found. So they began to celebrate. What does the younger son deserve? He deserves scorn and judgment. That's what he deserves. But what he finds instead is absolutely off the charts grace. And it actually starts back in verse 20. That amazing sentence is said, while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. Author and pastor Darrell Johnson reminds us, he says, everyone expects him to forget the son, to get lost in his work. A waiting father is not, What our dark human hearts expect. And it says the father was filled with compassion. The Greek word is splankniste. Easy for you to say. And the definition actually is the inward parts of the body, the guts, the entrails. So the meaning when the father looks a long way off and he sees his rebellious son coming back down the road. It's literally that his guts are ripped up inside. That's the depth of love and compassion. And then it says this amazing statement. It says he ran to his son, threw his arms around him, and kissed him. In that culture, that was unthinkable. L.P. Weatherhead in his book says, It is so very undignified in eastern eyes for an elderly man To run. 200 years before Jesus, the Jewish scribe and wise man Ben Sirah wrote, A man's manner of walking tells you what he is. Aristotle, the famous Greek philosopher, wrote, Great men never run in public. But the father doesn't care. He doesn't care one bit what anyone else thinks. His eyes are solely focused on his rebellious son. That is coming home. And that is incredibly beautiful. And he runs to him. Now, if you remember what the expectation of the villagers is, they are mad at this son. They are full of scorn for him. They actually, it's almost kind of developed by this point into hatred for this guy. And so why does the father run to his son? Why does he run? He runs and he embraces him. And he guides him back through the village he's protecting him from the scorn of the villagers not incredible i think that's so beautiful again kenneth bailey says the boy having steeled his nerves for this gauntlet now to his utter amazement sees his father turn it for him rather than experiencing the ruthless host- hostility not hospitality He deserves and anticipates. The son witnesses an unexpected, visible demonstration of love in humiliation. The father's act replaces speech. There are no words of acceptance and welcome. The love expressed is too profound for words. Remember that speech that the son was rehearsing on his long walk, his long journey home? He starts into it. Here, he says, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. And the father lets him say that. He lets him get that line out. You know why? Because repentance is a crucial part of coming back to God. There's part where our hearts need to admit, I'm sorry. I was running the other way. I've offended you. And I'm, and I'm sorry, and I want to make it right. The son must say that. It, it demonstrates true repentance. Repentance is good. It's redemptive for our hearts. But before he can continue on with part two of his speech, the father interrupts him. It says in verse 22, but the father said to his servants, he stops the son right after that first sentence. And Darrell Johnson so insightfully helps us see, he says that interruption is the gospel. God is not going to let us pay off the debt of sin. God is not going to let us try because it is not possible. What God in Christ allows us to do is simply turn around, repent, and come back home. What the Father says and does next, again, is absolutely unexpected. He says, Quick, bring the best robe, put it on, and put a ring on his finger, sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate for this son of mine is dead and is alive again. He is lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. There is such beautiful symbolism here. Simon Kistemacher in his book on the parables helps us see it. He says, servants are to bring the very best robe. But in that culture that was always reserved for a really special, honored guest. That is the last thing this rebellious son expected coming back home. And then his father gives him a ring. That symbolized authority. Everyone in the village could see that the son was not being rehired as a servant or a slave. He's being given full authority as a son of the father. And then he gives him sandals. Those were given to indicate that he was a free man. Slaves and the poorest of the poor always went about barefoot. But the father says, that's not going to be for my son. And finally, he says, he says kill the fattened calf. Let's have a, have a huge party. For my son was dead and he's now alive. And just like we saw last week in the two parables of the lost sheep and the lost coin, when the lost sheep's brought home, a party breaks out. When the woman finds the coin, a party breaks out. And it's the same here. If you were with us last week, I showed you in the first few verses of Luke 15 who in fact Jesus' audience was in telling these parables. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear Jesus, but the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. What the parable lays out in an unforgettable and straightforward way is the kind of love and grace that Jesus himself was demonstrating to everyone he interacted with. This scandalous love that the father portrays in this story is exactly what Jesus was doing each and every day of his ministry. And that's what the Pharisees and the teachers of the law branded him with. They said, you're eating with tax collectors and sinners and prostitutes. And Jesus said, yeah, that's the love of God. And it's pretty scandalous. And what Jesus lived out, he also died for. And his death on the cross makes all of this homecoming possible he pays the price for the forgiveness of the sins of the world that Ocean View community church is the gospel and it's the entire reason our church exists this is the foundation this is what everything else is about this is what everything is built on and you know what jesus is ultimately saying to you and i two thousand years later He's saying, I want you to understand the love of the Father in a more deep and profound way than you ever have before. And he said, your job is to become the visible expression of the gospel in your words and in your deeds. And when I think about all the areas around our church that our church has anything to do with or the lives that are touched from Duncan to Cedar, And I think what's going to change our communities? What's going to see us go from a a community where a small percentage of people are knowing and loving and following Christ to a town where half the town lives and walks with Jesus every day? And I'm convinced it's when we understand the gospel deeply in our own hearts and minds and we understand the grace that's been given to us and when it flows through us to other people. When we become the gospel in our actions and in our words, that is when our community is changed forever. Haley, come and pray for us.